The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I feel a hell of a lot better uh, than I did a week ago at this time on Election Day, although... It's a little weird that Donald Trump is now about to announce his presidential campaign like this very evening. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's an exciting and historic day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to endorse? Uh, I'm I'm withholding judgment. I'm just going to wait and see. I I, I you know I, I'm not yet decided on Trump. You know, I should get to sure. know. Him. I should get to know him a little better. Yeah, you want to know more about all these irregularities in the 2020 election? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, we will not be covering Donald Trump today, lucky you, listener, but we are going to cover lots of big news out of Russia and Ukraine, including a Russian missile strike that apparently just hit Poland. This is like kind of breaking news. Uh, President Biden is overseas on a long foreign trip. We'll talk about what's happening there, why this has been a terrible week and a very bad year for cryptocurrency. The UAE legalized bribery and influence peddling of government officials in Washington, Iran protests and how they're harming children, terrorist attack in Turkey, some news from Twitter and why an FBI investigation is upsetting the Israeli government. And then, Ben, listeners will after that hear my conversation with former U.S. Senator, current special envoy for climate change, John Kerry, who uh, called in all the way from the COP27 UN climate summit in Egypt. Pretty cool of him, actually. Back-to-back cops with John Kerry, because we had him in Glasgow a year ago. So That's right. Like, uh, he's like our cop correspondent for Pod Save the World. <laughs> yeah. He is uh, He is tireless at these things. You yes. really got to credit the guy. I really feel like he's found his calling in this job. Indefatigable, tireless, and has somehow more energy than you and I do, even though he's a little bit older than us. Yeah, and he's not like Pollyannish about it. I was like, oh, sounds like you guys are doing good work. He's like, well, we'll see. You know, okay, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, honest. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Ben, if you're looking for a holiday gift for John Kerry or anybody else, we got you covered because everybody likes coffee. It makes a great gift. So if you go to crooked.com slash coffee, you'll see our limited edition holiday gift boxes. And as always, a portion goes to Vote Save America's Every Last Vote Fund. So just I just solved your holiday needs. Well, I'm John Kerry must need to caffeinate at these summits, so we should get it for him. I wonder if he he probably drinks. He's got to do caffeine, right? These people who don't do caffeine freak me out. I don't understand them. Uh, I, I, it makes me alarmed and uneasy. Yeah, it's like Obama would have like a half a cup of tea in the afternoon and like one martini a month. I'm like, yeah. what is this life? What is this life you chose, sir? Uh, okay, lots of news, uh, significant news out of the war in Ukraine this week. So last week, the Russians officially retreated from the city of Kherson in southeast Ukraine. Uh, Russian troops were pinned down on the western side of the Dnipro River, and they were at risk of getting fully cut off from their own supply lines and just killed or captured. So they moved east back uh further away from Ukraine. Since then, there have been some really dramatic scenes of Ukrainian troops rolling into Kherson, liberating the city. Some of them literally found their own relatives and were able to liberate them. Very, very emotional stuff. Uh, Unfortunately, 
those scenes and stories have also been uh, juxtaposed with deep reporting about what life was like under Russian occupation, uh, which was just horrific. In fact, we have a clip here from uh, CNN who interviewed some folks in Kherson. Situation is very terrible. No gas, uh, no, sorry, gas we had. Electricity, no. Uh, power, no. Connection, connection, this is very important for people. People are lost. We don't know that. No, inter no internet connection. No internet connection, right. Uh, no water. But it's okay. We can wait. We were terrified by Russian army. We were terrified by soldiers that can come any moment in our house, in our home, just open the door like they're living here and steal, uh, kidnap, torture. We feel free. We are not slaves. We are Ukrainians. We are proud of it. You know, you can tell these people have just been living in, in hell since, you know, late February of last year. President Zelensky visited Kherson, and then today he addressed the G20 conference in Bali. Uh, he actually referred to it as the G19 to give the finger to Putin. But then as that meeting was happening, the Russians fired an estimated 100 missiles at targets all across Ukraine, including Kiev. Uh, Zelensky said once again, Russia is targeting their energy infrastructure, basically trying to freeze the country out uh, before winter. So getting to the, the main report right before we came in, Ben, uh, there are reports that at least one Russian missile flew across the border into Poland uh, and exploded and two people were killed about 15 miles from the Ukrainian border. It's not clear if that strike was on purpose by accident, whether the missile was knocked off course by like a Ukrainian missile defense system, what it might have been. Either way, this is the kind of nightmare scenario that people have been worried about where a NATO member gets hit and the alliance could get pulled into the war. Poland's national security team is reportedly deliberating right now. I don't know what kind of political pressure the Poles might feel here to respond. Uh, there might be voices calling for a NATO response. Apparently, there's an emergency NATO meeting tomorrow, and Biden talked to the NATO SecGen uh, just before we started recording. So, Ben, you know, any thoughts on sort of what you've seen so far or predictions about how the alliance might respond? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, these different pieces connect, right? Because what Kherson does is it begins to eat away at the only thing that Russia's really gained in this war territorially, which is the connection between Crimea up to eastern Ukraine, which we've talked about a lot. But again, once you start to eat, eat away at that and take back in Kherson, the only major regional capital that Russia had conquered, you start to put at risk Russia's capacity to hold that territory. Um, and, and so it's a major strategic victory for Ukraine. In response, what does Russia do? They do this kind of indiscriminate pulverizing of infrastructure to make civilians in Ukraine pay the price. But as they do that from a position of weakness, the possibility of, of miscalculation or inadvertently firing into Poland, or perhaps maybe deliberately sending a message by flying, firing into Poland, we don't know exactly what happened here, but the risks of escalation go up as Russia gets kind of weaker and less capable of you know, confronting Ukraine on the traditional battlefield. You know, And yeah. so I think from NATO, I wouldn't expect like a NATO response, like Article five, the collective defense being yeah, invoked yeah. and, you know, we're at war with Russia over this. Um, you might see NATO want to take some additional steps to show a cost to Russia. So maybe the provision of some additional weapon systems to Ukraine that they hadn't gotten before. Um, just, just something that opens up the aperture to show Russia, hey, if you do this, if you begin to try to cross into NATO, you know, things that you don't like are going to happen. Um, I also think we've talked a lot about diplomacy in recent weeks. 
and how diplomacy is not the same always as negotiating the end of the war. Mm-hmm. The reason it's so important to have diplomatic channels like, you know, Bill Burns recently was reported and talking to his counterpart, um, the head of Russia's intelligence service, Jake Sullivan, his counterpart, is so that you can have dialogue over an incident like this. Um, yeah, like, hey, asshole, what happened? Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and exactly, like, what the, what the fuck? And if you do this again, you know, this may happen, you know, in response. And so it speaks to the precarious nature of where this war is going, which is, ironically, as Ukraine gets more successful, the risks of escalation might actually go up because Russia is responding in ways that are different than just, you know, an artillery battle in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. A couple other big updates from last week. The U.S. now believes that 100,000 Russian troops are dead or wounded because of the war. Just a staggering toll. There was a a horrific video going around pro-Russian telegram channels of a Russian man who had been part of the Wagner uh, mercenary group. This guy was beaten to death on this video with a sledgehammer. It's a bit of a convoluted story about what happened, but basically this guy is Russian. He signed up with the Wagner group. He tried to switch sides to join the Ukrainian side, got recaptured somehow by the Russians, and then brutally executed. But I raise this because... The leader of the Wagner group, this oligarch named Prigozhin, who we've talked about a bunch of times, he was asked about the video and he joked about it, calling it, quote, excellent directorial work that's watchable in one sitting. And he called it a dog's death. So like truly, truly a sociopath. Um, As you mentioned, Ben, we know that the CIA director, Bill Burns, met with his Russian counterpart in Turkey. That's obviously good news. And then you alluded to this too. I think the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, has reportedly been pushing for more talks. So pretty bleak news out of Ukraine generally, but it is good to hear that, you know, there are more channels of conversation happening than we knew about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, the positive in that being the liberation of the people in Kherson, um, yep, yep. who, as the clip shows, by the way, like, you know, part of what you realize is these people who live in Russian occupied territories, like may not even know what's going on, you know, like they may have mm-hmm. no idea. Um, right, they, yeah. they may be living in some weird Russian information blackout. But yeah, it is bleak news in the sense that, you know, that Prigozhin video, the the further war goes on, the more nihilistic it can get, right? I mean, people are kind of, uh, Russia feels like a society that is spiraling into kind of some fascistic nihilistic dystopia, right? I mean, the fact that Putin would fire all these weapons, like right around the G20 summit, like doesn't seem like he gives much of a shit about no. you know, global opinion about what he's doing, or he thinks he can get a pass from some countries. Um, and so I think what we just have to be looking at is the kind of deterioration of, not that Russia was starting from a greater place, but like, um, there's a kind of a radicalization taking place that bears watching. And does that lead to kind of fracturing in the Russian elite and establishment as some people get a little, you know, uh, turned off by the direction of events? Some people get more radicalized, um, you know, this is going to be a, a, a difficult winter and um, it's going to take a lot of discipline uh, to, to couple support with Ukraine with efforts to keep this situation from escalating. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, I think that the Ukrainian side is the the good guys here to make it simple. And the Russian government is the aggressor and the bad guy. But like we cannot lose our humanity and think of 100,000 Russian casualties as anything less than a tragedy for those people, their families, that society. You know, it's like Vladimir Putin made this horrific choice and he is, you know, throwing his own troops and people into the meat grinder and the Ukrainians are suffering probably just as large a casualty count. And it's just, you know, it, it's just appalling. It is. And what you realize too, is that like, this will have long-term effects in both Ukraine and Russia. Like these are 
traumatizing events, you know. Uh, and on the Ukraine side, the the reconstruction needs are massive. The mm-hmm. desire for justice and accountability for Russian war crimes is front and center in Zelensky's messaging the global community. So this, no matter where this goes, this is like going to be with us for many years, whether it's the act of war or the fallout from the war. And I think that gets driven home every day, you know. Yeah. So uh, President Biden is overseas. He's searching for that red wave. I tried that <laughs> joke out on I tried that joke out on Kerry, and he was like, ah, okay, <laughs> five out of ten. <laughs> um, so Ukraine was the biggest story at the G20, uh, but also Biden had a three-hour meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Monday. That was their first in-person meeting since President Biden took office, and hopefully the end of a uh, several months long. Chinese diplomatic temper tantrum that started when Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan in August. Uh, President Biden also addressed the COP27 UN climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt last week. You'll hear lots more about climate in the interview with John Kerry later in the show. But I did notice that President Biden just announced a $20 billion financing deal to help Indonesia pivot away from coal power. I think that happened at at either the G20 or ASEAN. Uh, So obviously great news there. Uh, It's worth noting that Vladimir Putin and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi did not attend COP27. Uh, we'll definitely want them at the table if we're actually going to take global climate action. But Ben, anything jump out of you from this from the foreign trip generally? Yeah, well, I think the Chinese uh, meeting jumped out, and you know, look, I think it's it's positive that they were able to sit down and have a three-hour Me meeting. Um, they had not met yet. But what I was struck by is there was kind of no real effort from either side to put like a positive face on the relationship, really, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I just, as an observation, like yeah. they, they could have made a decision to say, like, we want to work more constructively to engage on these issues. And they could have announced like, you know, some future meeting between Biden and Xi. They basically announced uh, that, you know, Tony Blinken would be going to, to China to follow up. But I do think it kind of signaled, hey, we're in an era where the best they could say is that we want to kind of man and Biden said this in his press conference, but like we're trying to manage competition so it doesn't become conflict. Um, and that's like uh, we're at a new baseline here. Like the, the, we're mm-hmm. not, you know, there's gone are the days of kind of regular presidential summits in respective countries or remember win win. What happened with that? Or, or you know the strategic and economic dialogue. Remember these huge yeah. delegations from state and treasury and other agencies going back and forth, like. We are now in like a very competitive dynamic with China where it's going to be imperative to talk. Hopefully we can find some things to work together on like climate change or global pandemics. Um, But really, we're managing like a lot of differences. And, you know, Taiwan is the one that cries out because you mentioned Pelosi. I mean, you know, the the only bad outcome of the uh, the red trickle um, (laughs) is, you know, we probably still are looking at a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, like. Yeah. He's definitely going to Taiwan, you know, and so there are going to be further irritants in this relationship that necessitate, again, lines of communication and just managing this. I think that that did jump out to me um, from these meetings. I think also, you know, the the climate stuff you, you'll deal with, Kerry, the Indonesia piece is really important. And it spe- speaks to like those are the countries, Indonesia, Brazil, those kind of large countries that are, you know, not necessarily superpowers, but have huge climate equities, you know, mm-hmm. deforestation is an issue in Indonesia, coal is an issue in Indonesia. And actually having these summits there kind of clearly helped serve as a catalyst for, for Indonesia to do something. They're, they're hosting the G20. They clearly wanted to be like a good citizen here. So 
that's a positive. Uh, and I think it's good that the U.S. helped kind of get Indonesia in an ambitious place on climate. God, you just made me think for the first time how bad it is to have someone as stupid as Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House yeah, and like yeah. kind of going around the world and talking in a way that's seen as authoritative. Not ideal. I mean, you got to hope that the Chinese look at Kevin McCarthy. They looked at Pelosi and thought, well, here's a really smart woman who's in the same party as the president. So we, we're going to freak out. Hopefully they see a Kevin McCarthy going over there as just Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> you know, like, Because um, yeah. like, not that I don't support anybody going, it's that I don't support him popping off and saying something really dumb while he's there. Um, you know, like yeah. Mike Pompeo went there and you know said we should recognize Taiwanese independence, which is obviously would be very destabilizing. Like, you know, we don't need Kevin McCarthy waiting in a geopolitics here. Like best he sit that that those kinds of discussions out. No, he should just continue to to uh, pull out the pink M and M's or the uh, sorry Starburst for Donald Starburst, Trump as he's yeah. known to do. Um, okay, so a hard pivot here, Ben, to cryptocurrency. Because, and this is a long one and kind of convoluted story, but stick with me because I think it's actually important. So it has been a bad year for cryptocurrencies. And last week, things got a lot a lot worse. So quick context. In November of 2021, Bitcoin prices peaked at around $68,000 per Bitcoin. Heady times. Today, the price is down to around $17,000 per coin. So Ben, do you remember these like infamous Matt Damon crypto ads? Yeah, only the future belongs to the bold, Tommy. Yes, the, the bold. Um, uh, the fortune favors the bold. Yeah. Uh, if you bought Bitcoin when those ads started running, you are down well over 60% of your investment. So that is not ideal. Do we think Matt Damon was paid in Bitcoin or do you think he was paid cash? You know? I want to know that too. I yeah. want to know the same <laughs> for some of these celebrity endorsers. The other story that happened this past year was in May of 2022, there was a cryptocurrency called Terra Luna, algorithmic stablecoin. What that is doesn't really matter because it didn't work. Uh, that collapsed, erasing like $45 billion worth of value. We discussed it in detail at the time. So that brings us to last week. There is something called the FTX exchange and a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, who everyone calls SBF. So SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, he's the biggest name in crypto. He's been compared to Warren Buffett. He owns a mini crypto empire, including the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. A lot of, a lot of acronyms here. It's annoying. So what FTX is, is guys like you and me, Ben, we go there, FTX.com, we buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ethereum, whatever it is. But they wanted our business so badly that they bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat Stadium. They cut marketing deals with Tom Brady, uh, among other celebrities. So, you know, another guy who I wonder if he got his yeah. money in Bitcoin. And also, Ben, do you remember, it's been a tough year for Tom and endorsements. Do you remember when he released that Instagram hype video about Qatar? Yeah, that didn't, yeah, that doesn't look that good either. Yeah. Yeah, that one's, uh, um, that, was, that was hard for me. It's emotionally... Yeah kind of devastating. Okay, anyway, so back to FTX. So things went south last week when a news outlet published a leaked document that showed another company owned by Sam Bankman-Fried called Alameda Research, it's a hedge fund, that had a big chunk of its balance sheet invested in something called FTT tokens. FTT tokens, they're a crypto token created by the FTX exchange. I know this is confusing. It, you're not alone here in being confused. The activity makes no sense, but stick with me. So after that news report runs, Another huge cryptocurrency exchange called Binance announces on Twitter that they're going to sell their FTT tokens, which are the what FTX owns. They're basically saying, we don't have faith in the value of these things. That leads to a rush of people trying to withdraw their money from the FTX cryptocurrency exchange. And Sam Bankman-Fried soon has to announce that he's going to sell the FTX exchange to his biggest rival over at Binance, 
because they don't have enough money to cover the withdrawal request. So basically, Binance creates, in essence, a bank run yeah. at the FTX.com exchange by announcing they're selling their token, which creates this liquidity crisis that is so bad that SBF has to go and then beg Binance to buy his entire company. The problem is Binance initially agrees, but then looks at FTX's balance sheet and decides, nope, we're not doing this. So that is how, in one day, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was supposedly worth $16 billion, lost 94% of his wealth. Ben, does that parable give you faith in the crypto industry? <laughs> no, and you look at SBF or SB whatever, and you wonder why anybody ever like thought this guy was like Warren Buffett or some genius. And, He's like and, 30 like, years old. He's like, he looks like, uh, like, you know, Jonah Hill could have played him in the movie like 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and like, here's the thing too, like I noticed about SPF, he's like based in the Bahamas. He's doing interviews from like undisclosed locations. Here's the basic reality about crypto. The, the things that people liked about it are also the things that should give people pause about it. People, some people liked that it was this kind of massive unregulated space so that you could kind of escape the, the the long arm of regulators and the rule of law and all the rest of it and kind of create this whatever, you know, utopia of exchange. However, like think about all the other financial instruments that were unregulated in the past, you know, like or underregulated, like a subprime mortgage, like an unregulated get rich quick like formula is probably one that is not going to be stable. <laughs> and no. I think part of what we're learning is as more and more money was flowing to these crypto exchanges, like the vulnerability for people increased, right? As people are making bets to try to get as rich as they can, as fast as they can. It speaks to the, it is just not sustainable to think that you're going to have very significant monetary units outside of any regulatory framework. And, and, and people can, you know, crypto bros can at me on this, um, but like we've talked about this with, with like Bukele, the president of El Salvador, like, you know, maybe don't put your pension fund into something that has no stability attached to it. No, it's not attached to any any anything of value beyond what is happening in some wild west where people are deliberately trying to hide the, the money from from potential regulators. So it, it does just speak to like, I think, the inevitable vulnerabilities of crypto I think also like to draw parallels in different storylines now, Tommy, like this is not a great week for like, like libertarian adjacent, like crypto bros, like Elon Musk comes into Twitter with like, I think kind of something of a similar mentality, like, because I'm really rich, I'm really smart and I know how to do everything, you know? And I think yep. we're being we're we're being reminded that sometimes having like frameworks and institutions and laws <laughs> as cumbersome as that can be is helpful. Whether you're de dealing with the world's like most one of the world's most impactful social media platforms, or whether you're dealing with like some SBF bro guy down in the Bahamas, like you know, trading uh, stuff that of of dubious value. Yeah, like I, I do appreciate the sort of sentiment and the desire post-financial crisis to get away from big banks and a system that people feel was rigged and unfair to them. Yes. And, you know, like they got screwed while the banks got bailed out. But I remember, I'm reminded of the line in the Christopher Nolan Batman movie where he says, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that is what's happening with a lot of these crypto companies because 
news outlets got a hold of FTX's balance sheet and and they found that they were holding only $900 million in liquid assets against $9 billion in liabilities. So the liabilities are like money customers gave to FTX that they owe them back. They couldn't pay back anybody. Their FTX's biggest assets were about $10 billion worth of tokens that they basically just invented. They create these things out of, out of thin air, like the FTT token that we mentioned earlier, and there was another one called Serum. I mean, it gets it gets complicated quickly, but basically what these crypto companies do is, let's say you create 100 tokens, you sell one into the markets for $1, and then you hold 99, and you say, aha, I have $99 worth of value. And like, maybe you do, but if you tried to sell your other 99 into a, a highly illiquid market at times for your made up fake token, you're going to drive the price down or yeah. maybe no one is going to want it. Right. And so it's just like they're just it's completely fraudulent. There's reports that there was some sort of uh, back channel where SBF was able to trade money back and forth from uh, FTX, basically uh, the, the, the liabilities to his hedge fund and then use it to make these speculative bets. And the irony of all of this is that Sam Bankman-Fried was viewed as one of the good guys in crypto because yeah. he would go to Washington and advocate yeah. for regulations. And like he, he's been described as a Democratic donor. And that is true. He gave $40 million to Democrats. But a bunch of that money went to primaries to defeat Democrats who were too much like Elizabeth Warren, who would regulate crypto in ways he didn't like. Yeah. And by the way, his business partner gave $24 million to Republicans. So like, look, crypto fans who listen to this show, I'm sure there are very few at this point, they get mad at us when we're like skeptical. But I do think that like, if you believe in, in crypto and the sort of vision that many people ascribe to it, you should not support people or activities like this. Like this is fraudulent behavior. These people will probably go to jail and a lot of people are getting wiped out in the process here. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too. Like another angle to this, Tommy, is like, we, we haven't talked a lot about this, uh, but you know, it hasn't been like a banner half decade for the United States kind of reputation in the world going through Trump and a lot of volatility and a lot of dysfunction in our politics. And we've talked about diminished U.S. credibility in some ways. However, like the dollar hasn't been this strong in like decades. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's true. And, and even people like me have warned in the past, we've overused sanctions and that may turn people off the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Not trying to nerd out too much here, but it's interesting that for all the dysfunction in our politics and all the chaos in some of our foreign policies veering back and forth to Trump, in turbulent times geopolitically, the dollar is the home base that people go to. <laughs> and the dollar is very strong for that reason because it's backed by something tangible like the United States government, the United States Federal Reserve. And as crazy as we look, people at least know what that is. The, the Chinese are cooking the books and they're not transparent about their finances. Crypto is unregulated and, and opened all kinds of speculation and abuse. You know, the, 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 it's just notable that um, for all the innovation that should take place, and there's a, clearly a role for cryptocurrencies and in, in the financial markets and people who don't trust the government, I get it. But like, you know what? Like having rules around rules and transparency around things like is to the benefit in the long run here, you know? Yeah. You want the FDIC uh, backing up your deposits when something like this happens. Exactly. Um, I, I barely understand this stuff. Uh, this guy, Matt Levine over at Bloomberg wrote an amazing column about this that I highly recommend. Super smart financial mind. So uh, check that out. Hi. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Ben, let's talk about one of your favorite subjects, which is since you're in D.C. right now, which is the United Arab Emirates. Ah, yes. The Washington Post reported that U.S. intelligence agencies have compiled a secret report detailing extensive efforts by the UAE to influence the American political system. This report you know, documents legal and illegal activities. The legal side starts with spending more than $154 million on lobbyists since 2016, and then hundreds of millions more on donations to universities and think tanks. The illegal stuff includes hiring former U.S. intelligence and military officials to conduct surveillance on dissidents, politicians, journalists, and U.S. companies. Um, the article is worth reading in full. 
But remember that this is also coming shortly after Tom Barrick, who is his top Trump advisor, fundraiser, finance goon, was acquitted of charges that he was illegally lobbying for the UAE. And it comes after another Washington Post investigation about Gulf countries hiring former U.S. military and diplomatic officials. That included the UAE hiring 280 military retirees in the last seven years, including former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. So interesting to see that there was this intel report on all this activity, kind of bundling it together, briefing it. Someone leaked it. But most of this was happening in plain sight is kind of the key point here. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, and we've talked a lot about this over the years, but it's because of how important it is that, and look, some of this is legal corruption, right? So, you know, like some of this is, you know, like, uh, like, as we've talked about revolving door politics, like pouring money into think tanks, pouring money into lobbyists, pouring money into the US media, um, hiring former officials so that Current officials know that they have a golden parachute. And the fact that there was this report is interesting to me because usually you only do things like this about like adversaries, you know, like like what are the influence mm-hmm. operations of adversaries? Clearly, this the volume of of UAE influence operations in American politics was enough to raise the alarm bells in the intelligence community. To be like, shit, we better pull together an analytical product on this. And, and that tells me that it's probably even worse than, than what we've seen in terms of how much money they are spending to try to influence our politics. And part of what is so alarming to me, and this does intersect with the crypto story we just talked about, is they're exploiting all these kind of like soft spots and weak spots. And you talk about like hiring US you know, ex-military or intel people to spy on dissidents. Like that's some dark shit. We've talked about Saudi's massive investment in Twitter and just the unease that creates about as Twitter unravels, what's going to happen to all the data in other countries. And like the UAE and Saudi would love to have the data on people who are critical of their regimes inside their countries and beyond their borders as well. And and I do think there's this kind of weird space uh, uh, like of uh, of where money can just buy anything. You know, yeah. and then that's really the crypto space is part of this, right? Like, there's like money laundering happening there. And the Emiratis and the Saudis are kind of right in the middle of that, you know, and they think they can buy political influence. They think they can buy the tools to 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 harass and silence dissidents. And this demands like a policy response from the U.S. government. No, and just remember, like because of the Abraham Accords, the Trump administration agreed to sell the UAE advanced drones and F-35 fighter jets. So the, some of the most advanced weaponry we have, period, as part of that deal. And there's also a report in the Times about Iran and China hiring private investigators to surveil dissidents in America, which you have, like all of this behavior and activity is getting so much more aggressive. Yeah. And, you know, and coincident, obviously, you know, maybe not coincident to the Abraham Accords, right? You also had the the provision of this uh, NSO group, Israeli made spyware to the some of the signatories of the Abraham Accords, right? And we covered the story about the uh, British pilots being hired by China to, to learn mm-hmm. how to fight, you know, the Britain and the U.S. Shoot in a war. Shoot down our jets, yeah. Australia recently had another story, a similar story in Australia. Like, one of the most profound issues we have to get our arms around is the world's autocrats and kleptocrats and goons and get-rich-quick grifters have just decided that everything's for sale for the highest bidder. Trump is kind of the embodiment of that ethos. Um, and I, I think part of having like a sustainable approach to democracy <laughs> is 
trying to get this influence out of our politics and trying to place higher values in other things. And you mentioned Barack, like I didn't scrutinize the case. The reality is what's the mo- biggest scandal is, is what's legal, right? Because sometimes they're just prosecuting guys like this for like not registering, but it's, you know, is it perfectly legal to take like millions of dollars from a foreign government and then use that uh, to, you know, to work with like the head of the RNC, Steve Wynn, to try to influence American foreign policy? Like, well, it shouldn't be. And so this yeah. is something for Congress to look into as well. Well, I'm glad you like I'm glad you brought up the Trump piece of this because in sort of related influence peddling news, the Times reported that Trump uh, has signed a deal with a Saudi real estate developer to license his name for a golf course in Oman. That's one piece. The Washington Post reported that China, Malaysia, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the UAE spent more than seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars at Trump's DC hotel. Why he while he was president, Qatar spent more than three hundred grand just like housing people over three months. Um, I'm sure we have listeners who are annoyed that we talk about this so much, but when you add this money up, the Trump Hotel, the $2 billion the Saudis gave to Jared Kushner, the cash that the Saudi-owned Live Golf Tournament just funnels into Trump's golf courses, they are bribing the former president in the United States and his son-in-law in plain sight. And later this evening, Trump is going to run announce he's running for president again. And I'm just like, I, I'm beyond exasperated that we all know this is happening. It's reported. It's in Intel products and the Washington Post. And Congress can't seem to figure out some sort of like reform package to prevent it. Like, what, what are we doing here? No, that's right. And I think the reason it's worth coming back to, too, is that like we talk a lot about democracy and threats to democracy. And some of that's a, like election denialism and insurrection. Some of that is like like voting rights and structural inequalities and and, you know, denying franchise and gerrymandering. But like an enormous piece that is global is just this corruption, the corruption of politics and countries, the corruption of foreign policy. And I think the reason it bears talking about is, number one, I think politically it's a very powerful message, right? <laughs> to, to basically, you know, call like one message it sells everywhere is like, hey, these, these corrupt people are trying to look out for themselves and not for you. Like that's a message that travels far and fast. And that should be a pro-democracy message, the anti-corruption message. And the other is like there are real tools that we can develop to go after corruption and kleptocracy and money, illicit money transfers. We can actually like begin to reverse this tide. And, and some of that is going to take new legal authorities and some of that's going to take the government like enforcing laws better. But uh, this is a huge piece of the democracy agenda. And frankly, it's one that can appeal to people who may not care about more ephemeral appeals to democratic values as much as I wish they did, but they might care about the fact that, hey, the president's for sale, you know? Oh, yeah, man. I think ethics and lobbying reform and and campaign finance reform is like the core of all this. Back to Iran, though. Uh, The protests in Iran are still happening. And what's upsetting is that the regime's response, it's just getting more and more brutal. I mean, it's not surprising at all, but it's just horrible to read about. So, Iran has uh, ordered its first death sentence for a protester uh, who the regime claims was trying to set fire to a government building. That's one piece. And then the crackdown is increasingly targeting children. Uh, The New York Times reported that kids as young as 13 have been beaten, thrown in prison, or even killed because they're part of these protests. Amnesty International says they've documented 33 cases of minors killed in the protests. And activists say that up to 1,000 minors are in prison. There was one incident where security forces, running security forces, tear gassed an elementary school because the kids were chanting protest slogans at recess, literally like recess. Um, The UN says 
14,000 Iranian protesters have been arrested. The EU and the UK have responded with more sanctions. Um, I'm sure the US is considering the same. I just, I don't know what else, you know, Western countries can do, if anything, or that they should do to support these protesters. But like tear gassing elementary school kids at recess, I mean, how low can you, can you fall here? Yeah, I mean, a few thoughts on this. Um, one is, because this is horrific and it demands constant attention and support to these protesters. I do think also, I hope the U.S. government has mechanisms to try to understand, like, what is the view on the ground? Like, how, you know, and sometimes in the past, we haven't really understood the, that dynamic. But I also think, look, you see lots of different countries taking actions in isolation. If we could try to collectivize this response a bit, you know, like some shared messaging from the U.S. and other democracies around the world, the U.S. and Europe and others, it feels like you would get a bigger bang for your buck, if you will, in your messaging, in your sanctions, if this was all done kind of in in some degree of coordination. Um, And then, of course, like we have to continue to explore ways to provide communications technologies, Internet access into the country, because clearly they're they're trying to cut people off, black out communications in certain areas. But yeah, this is going to be like a a long and bloody struggle. Um, And uh, I I just think it, you know, at some point we're going to have to like adjust to a new reality where um, we're trying to find tools um, to to just defend the human rights of these people as best we can, knowing that we have limited levers to pull. Yeah, I totally agree. And a couple of quicker updates before we get to uh, Senator Kerry. So in Istanbul, Turkey, on Sunday, there was a deadly bombing on a crowded street full of shoppers that killed six people and wounded more than 80. Turkish authorities arrested a woman who they say was responsible. They claimed she had been sent from Syria by Kurdish militants to carry out the attack. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in Turkey in more than five years. And Turkey accused the U.S. of being complicit in what happened because the U.S. works with and supports Kurdish-led militias in Syria. Uh, And Turkey has vowed to retaliate. So that is quite ominous, Ben. Uh, Also, you might have noticed, Ben, the the Elon Musk Twitter experiment is going (laughs) really well. Uh, The Twitter blue verification push has led to a fake but verified account from George W. Bush saying he missed killing Iraqis. Uh, A fake Tony Blair uh, quote tweeted that and said he did too. A fake but verified Joe Biden announced that he was masturbating at that very moment. Uh, And then more seriously, there was a guy who said Twitter locked his account for 12 hours after he posted a joke about Elon Musk supporting independence for Taiwan. So this guy didn't impersonate Elon. He didn't break any of the rules. But as we know, Elon has a major financial interest in China uh, via Tesla. And this guy's account gets frozen just for associating Elon and Taiwan independence in the same tweet. So chilling sign of what could happen to free speech in the Musk era. I uh, I decided, Ben, to follow suit today with a similar made-up joke about Elon supporting Taiwan independence and um, uh, renaming the month of June Tiananmen Square Massacre Month. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, see if you get uh, locked out of Twitter and finally break that habit. Um, I, like, I mean, one, this is a good demonstration of realizing that it, it can be worse. We've been quite critical of tech companies, but like, we, we, we now know how much worse it can get. Um, when there's, but, but the, the Elon Musk thing, I guess a theme of today is corruption. I mean, the marrying of his personal financial interests with his ownership of this massive global square platform should be really alarming. Because as you say, everything you know about Elon Musk suggests he places business interests in China above any purported value of free speech. We've already seen he's so thin skinned that 
he puts his own ego ahead of any purported values of free speech or comedy being back on Twitter. Um, but again, like I think what's missing in America is like, you know, here we look at it and it's kind of crazy and maybe it's funny and tragicomic or maybe we're like virtue signaling by developing like what Mastodon accounts or something. But mm-hmm. I mean, the real problem is actually globally, like Twitter is a really important like source of information in a lot of places that don't have a lot of free and open debate and information. And this kind of ugly turn for Twitter, I'm just imagining what it's like, you know, if content moderation is basically removed or, you know, skewed in a weird direction, you know, what's that like in, you know, Nigeria or Indonesia or India or, oh yeah, totally. uh, you know, all these places where there's, you know, really intense political competition and, Never mind that how much data, like you and I have created a quite a breadcrumb trail of our likes and dislikes by what we do mm-hmm. on Twitter, and um, and that we're never going to get that data back, and it now belongs to Elon Musk, right? And so again, like uh, uh, maybe the theme of today is like regulation is, is like something we need a little bit more of in the in the yeah. world because the fact that Elon Musk can basically come in like a wrecking ball like this is 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 a little disconcerting. Yeah, no, the, the 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 point about the impact of the Musk purchase in foreign countries is well taken because as much as we complain about content moderation over here, it is just, you know, what we've learned over the years is whether it's Twitter or Facebook or any other platform uh, overseas, they have far, far, far less uh, resources dedicated yeah. to making these platforms a safe place. Ben, I saw that the FBI has opened an investigation into the killing in May of a Palestinian-American journalist named Shireen Abu Akla. Uh, We talked about this a bunch at the time. I would say this is a welcome but long overdue step. Top Israeli officials immediately denounced the investigation. They said they would refuse to cooperate. So we will see how hard the Biden administration actually pushes this. But uh, I hope pretty hard uh, because, you know, it seems like the IDF wants to cover up their role in in her murder. I mean, it's a, I, 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 I was surprised by the announcement, positively surprised. Uh, there was really no accountability for this you know, killing of a journalist. Um, and so, uh, like, I, I think it's an important step forward because there's just such an absence of any accountability for for anything really, in, in, in cases like this. Um, what's interesting is, is the strong negative Israeli reaction which is not surprising, but that was the outgoing government, right? That was the more modern mm-hmm. government, right? It was uh, Bennett. I think this foreshadows, this is going to be a really bumpy couple of years with this new right-wing government. Not even right, far-right government, right? We talked about this last time, but like, how are they going to respond to an investigation like this? What happens if there are additional killings in the West Bank, for instance, or in parts of East Jerusalem? This is one more tinderbox that could get a lot more complicated because... There's going to be a lot of posturing from the far right in Israel and a lot of expectation that Netanyahu will stick it to the Democratic administration. Probably a lot of Republicans who want to make common cause with that kind of effort. So, you know, uh, buckle up here a little bit. Um, But I mean, the principles the U.S. should be guided by are values and accountability and rule of law. And if a journalist like this is killed, you know, never mind an American citizen, um, you know, we, we have a right to demand that there's full accountability uh, and in full investigation. Absolutely. Uh, two more quick things before the John Kerry interview. So, Ben, I saw that a 50-year-old Chinese marathon runner shocked the competition uh, in early November when he completed the race in three hours and 28 minutes while chain-smoking cigarettes 
the entire time. This fellow goes by the name of Uncle Chen. He finished uh, 574th out of 1,500 competitors and also pulled off a similar feat in 2018 and 2019. This has led many people to wonder, is this the greatest athletic accomplishment in the history of mankind? As you know, I'm an anti-smoker, but credit where credit is due, no? I mean, how how would you rank this? Yeah, as a like... uh frequently recovering um, smoker, uh, like the closest I would ever imagine to doing anything like that is uh, running a few miles while chewing Nicorette. Um, mm. I, I mean, I just don't know like what this guy's lungs are made of. Like uh, it's, it's like, it is pretty like, but then when you go back and you look at like the, you know, the tape of like the Olympics a hundred years ago and there's, there's like dudes like just like ripping cigarettes before oh, like yeah, running yeah. the 400 meters or something <laughs> like so so i guess like he comes out of a tradition where this used to happen a lot uh it's a little jarring to see but i would encourage people to uh use the patch or the nicorette uh next time they want to run a marathon maybe it's it's not the kind of feat that needs to be replicated you know yeah there's that like iconic photo of uh then uh, Chiefs quarterback Len Donson uh, ripping a heater at halftime of Super yeah. Bowl one. <laughs> no, when I was a kid, like in the Mets, like Keith Hernandez was like my like favorite player, and he used to just smoke in the dugout between innings. That, that wasn't that long ago. It's crazy. Uh, no, uh, no, um, yeah, yeah. Cigarettes are bad. Uh, yeah, don't, ben, don't the twenty. 20- smoke. <laughs> don't smoke. Uh, the twenty twenty two World Cup in Qatar is about to start. Now is a great time for listeners to binge my World Corrupt series about all the reasons why FIFA made a terrible decision and Qatar as a choice of venue is a complete disaster. I don't know if you've seen this, Ben, but there are a bunch of amazing videos emerging of the like Firefest-like accommodations that Qatar has put together. There's basically just like, they kind of like, if a, if, a, if a porta potty had sex with a trailer and then you threw a mattress in it, like that's what they're calling a hotel room over there. And then World Cup organizers are now scrambling to hide all the Budweiser branded beer stations after a last minute edict from the Qatari government that they had to be moved and hidden in some fashion. So alcohol is not banned in Qatar, but its sale is restricted usually to like hotels where foreigners go. But Budweiser pays $75 million to be associated with the World Cup. And now they're stashing their wares and their branding uh, to where people can't see it. So I'm sure they're thrilled about this. So basically my question is, if you want to go, that's probably we could probably get a ticket and just jump on a flight to Doha. What's so, what's so dumb about this is how, I mean, you guys cover this obviously and World Corrupts, but like how foreseeable all of this was. <laughs> like like, like having a sporting event that is you know very connected to alcohol consumption uh, that uh, and wanting to celebrate, you know, diversity and not uh, be completely disrespectful of LGBT rights and on down the list, right? Never mind the persecution of foreign workers that were ne- like uh, this was so foreseeable, and this is why these kinds of decisions should be dealt with on the front end. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't put lipstick on this. You know, nope, nope, predictable, predicted. Absolutely terrible. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you will hear my conversation with John Kerry about the UN climate summit that he was at in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, when we spoke. We've got all the updates. We'll hear all about what's going on there, uh, the demands from developing countries for more money for loss and damage, some policy he's putting forward, just kind of what the vibe is like over there. So stick around for that. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, 
where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. I am uh, thrilled to introduce our guest today, all the way from Egypt, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry. It's great to see you. Happy to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. Um, First question, you know, you rolled out something during this trip called the Energy Transition Accelerator. Can you explain what that is for listeners who are new to the concept and, you know, and what you might say to critics who are skeptical about the concept of, of carbon credits? Well, I think everybody's a little bit wary because we've learned some tough lessons about credits. And uh, some of them have been, you know, pretty loose and goosey. Uh, the fact is that... Uh, you know, sometimes things were counted twice or uh, it, it, it was sort of a bogus kind of credit. And, and so people are, are, you know, warned in, in that sense, but so are we. And nothing that we do is going to resemble uh, what went before in the context of that kind of looseness and lack of accountability. Um, what we're doing is making up for the fact that no country in the world has the kind of money that you need to be able to put on the line to affect this transition fast enough. The science is telling us you guys have to reduce your emissions by 45 percent by 2030 by, you know, you got to be the net zero emissions by 2050. And we can't get there if we don't do enough in the next eight years. We can't do enough in the eight years if we don't have money on the table. That is to say concessionary money, which means money that people can lose, money that, you know, gets a very, very low return or low interest rate. And so how do you get that money? Well, we believe that uh, by allowing credits to be purchased by certain corporations would not include fossil fuel, that would be exempt, but, but companies would actually wind up funding an acceleration of the transition so we can meet our goals. And, and, and we've just proven here that we can make really sound arrangements to reduce coal, to, to accelerate the deployment of renewables, if we have a little bit of money to be able to de-risk those deals. Mm-hmm. So this is really an effort to de-risk faster so the trillions of dollars people have been hearing about will actually deploy and invest in clean energy, new energy, batteries, direct carbon, all the things we need to do in order to reduce the emissions and win the battle. Um, And it's interesting at this COP because, you know, in the past, 
Rich countries have pledged money to developing countries for climate mitigation to reduce future emissions. The amount of money actually delivered has often fallen short of pledges, but you know money has been delivered. This year, there's also talk about compensating developed countries for loss and damage, which means you know weather events like the uh, catastrophic floods that we just saw in Pakistan. I saw that your Chinese counterpart suggested he was interested in this idea. Has there been progress made at this COP towards allocating some of that loss and damage funding? Well, there's been progress made in defining the process by which we're going to try to do that over a fixed period of time. Uh, and there's an agreement that we need to find some kind of financial arrangements to be able to know that a Pakistan, by the way, the United States, President Biden put up $100 million, boom, and just we'd send it no strings attached in order to deal with 30 million people who've been displaced by record levels of flooding, uh, a, a certain amount of which absolutely comes from the climate crisis because the warming of the ocean sends more moisture into the air. And that's why we're seeing these torrential rainfalls and, and flooding. So, uh, yes, we're working on it. We, we, what we don't want to do is set ourselves up for failure by pretending that there's going to be enough money in a new fund when the old fund from Paris still has not been completed. And I, I just think we, we, we want to maintain a base of reality here that's critical to this endeavor. At this COP, I mean, you know, all of us in the U.S., I think, or progressives in the U.S., were incredibly excited um, when the Inflation Reduction Act passed uh, because, you know, you know, it was this enormous step forward from the U.S. perspective to deal with emissions, to incentivize green energy production. But I've also noticed that, you know, internationally, you've seen people uh, raising questions about that funding via the WTO concerns that it's incentivizing U.S. businesses to the detriment about uh, of foreign industries. How is the IRA being perceived among your counterparts? Is it, is it winning think, our back? Uh, well, I is think, it yeah, Tom, sorry, sorry, Tommy. Um, yeah. Most people, first of all, there's an admiration for it because they know that it's real. It's serious. It's going to help America to be able to meet its goal. And President Biden was able to stand up the other day and, and really say with confidence and reality, truthfulness, we're going to meet our goal. We can meet our goal because of this uh, very important piece of legislation. But it does have a few little provisions in it here and there that worry uh, some of the companies. For instance, the have to be made in America components. And, you know, that affects car, car mm -hmm. manufacturers in Canada with right. whom we have a good relationship. Right. It also affects uh, folks in Europe. And so they just don't want their products suddenly made um, too expensive compared to what's happening here. And, and you know, you have an all-out trade war as a result and things sort of fall apart. We need to work those things out. We've usually had a pretty good way of doing that. Uh, and, and we're not trying to create disadvantage in Europe, or else, particularly Europe. I mean, Europe's so hard hit in support of Ukraine and with the problem of getting off of Russian gas, which is a monumental task, and they're doing it. I mean, they're really working mm -hmm. hard to deploy renewables and free themselves from a dictator who weaponizes energy. And, and so there's a lot of moving parts right now, and it's pretty complicated, and, and, and uh, you know, it's got its risks. But we, yeah. we, want, we want to work with our European friends. We want to work with Canada, obviously, our neighbor. And I'm confident we will to work out the kinks. And then there's an element of folks who are sort of 
looking at the IRA and saying, whoa, we better get our act together and start moving on these technologies because these guys otherwise are going to own them. And, uh, right. and we're not, right. you know, we're not trying to do that. We will share uh, going forward. But I think there is a feeling of a little competitiveness. Yeah. Well, I was curious how the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has impacted your conversations. I, I imagine, you know, it certainly would incentivize me if I were a European leader to try to get off of Russian oil and gas as fast as I could. But I also know that you're asking people sometimes to make politically painful decisions uh, for the long term gain of, you know, saving the planet. No small thing. But how are those conversations going in that context? You know, they're going. I'll tell you why I think they're not as complicated as, as you're saying, Tommy. And that's because uh, this is the greatest economic opportunity that the world has ever seen. And everybody is mm -hmm. going to share in what is going to happen here. It's the biggest hmm. transformation since the Industrial Revolution. And that's not an exaggeration. Every aspect of what we do is going to be affected. How we build our buildings, how we propel our vehicles, how we heat our homes, how we light our homes, how we produce electricity, how we uh, are going to uh, deal with waste, how we're going to deal with plastic. I mean, every aspect of life has to kind of shape up and become a little bit more sustainable and, and, and less polluting. I mean, this is pollution we're talking about. 15 million people die every year around the planet from the lack of quality air. I mean, and that's because of, you know, fossil fuel, mostly coal fired power, particularly that sends a lot of particulates up. It falls uh, in, in, in the country and and particularly in the ocean where it's acidifying the ocean at a rapid rate, higher acidity rates that affects uh, lobsters and crabs and clams and and our fish stocks and other things, which are moving as a consequence of the warming of the ocean. So there's just huge implications here. And if we want to not, you know, watch while tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people are impacted by the shifts that are taking place. For example, 17 of the 20 most impacted countries due to climate are in Africa. And these happen mm -hmm. to be countries which are barely turning out any emissions. So you have right. you have 48 sub-Saharan African states that equal 0.55% of all the emissions. Then you have the 20 largest economies in the world, of which we're number one, China's number two, and, and China and the U.S. are 40% of all emissions. How are you going to prevent people from saying, hey, wait a minute, you guys, you guys are doing this to us. And, and, and if we don't want a north-south, you know, division that is irreparable and dangerous, we need to step up and be responsible about what we're doing. I like that. And listen, as a, as a former constituent, I just want to say that I greatly appreciated the shout out to the lobster industry and to the clams. You know, like you're speaking my language, man. Um, the, other, the other elephant in the room here is China. I know you saw your Chinese counterpart a few times at the summit. President Biden just wrapped the meeting with Xi Jinping. China had suspended talks with the U.S. on climate and everything else ever since Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. How should we lay people like myself interpret China's commitment to actually dealing with the climate crisis. If something as small as a congressional delegation visit to Taiwan can get them to, you know, diplomatically ghost us for, for several months. Well, we're going to find out. I'm going to meet with my counterpart, Chinese counterpart tomorrow. Uh, we'll find out if they're really serious about 
making progress on the broader issue of the climate crisis. I hope we are. I, I think my counterpart, by the way, is a, is a person of integrity, uh, very intelligent, very thoughtful. He's been at this issue. He's been involved in it for years now. We've known each other for about 20 or 25 years or so. And uh, he, he has really worked hard to try to help make progress in the past. I just won't know until we really uh, sit down and get at it, whether or not there's a chance for China to join the United States in these, in these closing days and make some progress. Yeah. It's easy, like, you know, you know this better than anyone. When you focus on these issues all the time, it can be very uh, doom and gloom and depressing, and it feels like things are getting inexorably worse. I'm wondering if there's any conversations, ideas, people you've met this week where you thought, that's amazing, that's inspiring, we need to lift that up. Well, there's, I mean, yeah, there are a bunch of them, to be honest with you. There's an awful lot happening here. There are a lot of companies here, major companies from the United States and elsewhere in the world that are deeply committed to winning this battle and that are producing, you know, new electrolyzers that will lower the cost of hydrogen and start to get hydrogen out into the marketplace at scale. Uh, you got people doing amazing things in battery storage and direct carbon capture in carbon capture and storage. I mean, I run a list. There's, there's now almost a trillion dollars of venture capital that's trying to chase these solutions. In, in addition to that, um, you've got a lot of folks who are really intent on, on trying to bring people to the table in a constructive way and move things forward. And I see more energy in the private sector, more uh, willingness to try to buckle down. I mean, Ford and General Motors have joined together with Volvo to say that 10% of the steel that they buy to make cars is going to be green steel. And and you've got uh, the Maersk, Maersk uh, Shipping Company, which is one of the largest container shippers in the world, has said that the next eight ships they buy or lease or build are going to be carbon free. And in fact, they're at about 19 ships, even though their pledge last year was eight. I mean, things are moving here. And the marketplace is beginning to reflect this as, as uh, people see their products they can buy. We have a lot of big companies. I mean, you know, FedEx, um, Boeing, uh, uh, Lafarge Wholesome, largest cement dealer in the world, uh, Salesforce, Apple. I mean, you could run a long list here of big companies that have stepped up to help accelerate this transformation. And I personally believe uh, you know, we've shown at Glasgow a year ago, we stepped up and a lot of countries uh, raised their game. They, they set targets that actually could achieve keeping 1.5 degrees as the limit of warming. And we still have some other countries, but Mexico has moved. Uh, Vietnam has moved a little bit, is thinking about what more it can do. Indonesia has moved. Uh, 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 Egypt has moved. I mean, there are countries that are growing economies or big economies that are part of the G20 or very close to it that are now really accelerating their efforts, Tommy. And the result is going to be uh, really helpful to our moving towards the goal. We still have some big countries that are not yet aligned with the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, and we need to get everybody aligned with it. 
Yeah. Listen, and last question for you, and thank you for your time. Like you, um, having seen you at work at summits like this, I know you are tireless uh, at these things and talking to a billion people and just everywhere. So really grateful for the time. This COP summit is in Egypt. The next one is in the UAE. You know better than anyone that neither country has a great human rights record. There are activists who say, look, human rights considerations cannot be ancillary or a separate topic. They're critical to all of our success because without activists protesting, academics, journalists, fair courts, we will never push governments around the world to take the hard steps they need to take. And when you have a host country like an Egypt or a UAE, it undercuts that broader commitment to human rights. What do you, what do you say to them? We are always committed to human rights and we always raise the issue. Uh, the United States of America is founded on human rights and President Biden raises that issue with leaders everywhere. So does Secretary Blinken, so do I, others. We're all engaged in that ongoing discussion. And frankly, I think bringing the, the, the world to the table uh, in the way that we are here now sheds greater light on it and, and helps people to have a focus they might not have otherwise. But I got, but you know, we can't, I mean, first of all, you know, there's a process by which those choices are made. We don't make the choice. And in the global community, you, you, you know, you've got to meet with people. You've still got to arrive at, at, at moving the process forward in the ways that you can. But we do so always uh, pushing uh, for advances in human rights or for a particular case that we're aware of, some uh, and, and I think uh, we've been able to make progress in that in many countries around the world, and we will continue to. All right. Well, Special Envoy Kerry, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all your work you're doing uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, and, and best of luck. Thank you, Tommy. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks. Take care. You too. And think about have our socks. We need better. The Red Sox. Fix them, will you? <laughs> <laughs> we need, can you get Tom Brady back? Can you trade him to maybe Florida? Year. I don't know. We'll have to, we might have to trade Belichick if we do. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Senator. Thank Have you, man. Take care. Thanks again to I always call him Senator Kerry, Ben. I can't like break myself out of that as a is a is a mass hole through and through. But was he not special envoy Kerry? Yeah, but I'm stuck in Secretary Kerry because that you know like uh, mm. you you know I had the second term with him. Uh, but I, I'm a, I'm a John Kerry fan, man. I, I just I, a good guy. I've always admired John Kerry. Just a great guy, works his ass off, like seemingly loves this job. It must be very challenging, at times thankless, difficult work, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, just, he's after it. And, and I'll say my one plug, Tommy, is I'm heading uh, up to New York for the uh, Obama Democracy Forum, the first of nice. its kind, a global convening of young leaders in particular from around the world on issues related to democracy. I, I'll be moderating the panel on, on pluralism in democratic societies which will include our guest Tabata Amaral from last week. So uh, check it out. It's live streamed if people want to check it out Thursday. Just go to the Obama Foundation website and you'll figure it out. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll all do that. We'll have to tweet that from, uh, from the old Podsafe accounts. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Excellent. All right, man. We'll have a great week and uh, talk to you guys soon. Podsafe the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Media. 
escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.